Hi, welcome to Me, Myself, and TBI. I'm your host, Christina Brown Fisher. I am a journalist and writer, and I'm a traumatic brain injury survivor. After suffering a TBI, along with a host of other injuries following a motor vehicle wreck, I spent a little more than a year in neurorehabilitation at a Department of Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Virginia. I'm also an Air Force veteran. I healed alongside men and women who, like me, suffered their brain injury due to accident, but in many more cases, they were there because of war, their service in Iraq or Afghanistan. A few years later, when the world was in the throes of the pandemic and I had returned to New York believing I was healed from TBI, I began wrestling with some all too familiar symptoms, dizziness, fatigue, forgetfulness, increased heart rate, and what I could only describe at the time as brain fog. So I sought help again, but this time the other patients, they were people who had been diagnosed with long COVID. New data from the Centers for Disease Control indicate nearly one in five adults who have had COVID-19 now have long COVID. I spoke with researcher and neuropsychologist Dr. James Jackson from Vanderbilt University. He has led research and treated patients affected by the cognitive impact of long COVID. He is the author of the new book, Clearing the Fog, From Surviving to Thriving with Long COVID, a Practical Guide. Consider this book a handbook for how to navigate a complex medical system that often leaves people diagnosed with long COVID feeling further isolated and sometimes ignored. He also talks about his own diagnosis with obsessive compulsive disorder and offers tips on how to advocate for yourself, plus where to look to find answers to the many questions that come with chronic illness. He spoke with me from his office in Nashville, Tennessee. Thank you uh, so much, Dr. Jackson, for uh, joining me today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I'm a big fan of your work and uh, of you, and I'm really happy to be here with you today. So thank you. It is the time of year where we start hearing a lot more conversations about flu and more conversations about COVID, COVID coming back. Um, Let's talk about what long COVID is and how that is distinguished from what most of us know about COVID. Thanks for the question. Uh, Long COVID and COVID are a little bit distinct. Obviously, they're related. But when we think of COVID, we think of an acute phenomenon. Really, you know, people develop COVID. They test positive for COVID. And typically, for most people, thankfully, um, the symptoms associated with COVID, they last a day or two, or these days, they last for a week, perhaps. But for a subset of people, probably tens of millions of people around the world, After those acute symptoms clear up, there are still symptoms that persist. And that's what we call long COVID. And that long COVID is marked by sometimes relatively permanent difficulties in cognitive functioning, in mental health functioning, in physical functioning. The acute symptoms are often gone, but lingering symptoms persist. And it's really vexing. It's challenging. It's often disabling. It's what we call long COVID. And in your book, you talk about 
the volume of symptoms, that there's somewhere upwards of 200 symptoms that are associated with long COVID? There are hundreds of symptoms that people endorse as a function of having long COVID. Now, some of those are relatively rare, right? Some of them are not so common, but dozens of them are. The the unholy trinity of symptoms, as I like to call them, are in the physical functioning domain. Those include fatigue primarily in the cognitive functioning domain, then in the mental health domain. Those are the three primary areas. I think strangely, the majority of people with long COVID symptoms, I say strangely because I wouldn't have expected it. I don't think we expected it. The majority of people with long COVID symptoms are people who were never very sick. They were never in the hospital, less in the ICU. Clearly, if you're critically ill with COVID, you're on a ventilator, your organs are failing, et cetera, you often have residual problems. Often they're quite permanent. They're really problematic. Um, That hasn't been surprising. We've been surprised, though, to see how many people had virtually no symptoms at all, right? They were not hugely ill. And three months later, six months later, nine months later, a year later, they're having problems with attention. They're having problems with processing speed. They're so fatigued they can't get off the couch. Um, They used to run marathons. Now they stumble their way through the local 5K, right? Um, These are fairly common phenomena, and often they occur on the heels of really mild symptoms. That's an important thing to note because I think there's this notion that you can't really be limited, disabled, hindered by long COVID if your COVID wasn't so severe. That's just not the case, just not true. I think that's one of the most surprising things that I came away with after reading your book, that you don't necessarily have to have a very serious or significant case of COVID um, to then later be diagnosed with long COVID. And then on top of that, the other thing I found surprising was this delay that could be three months or, as you just mentioned, a year later. So how then do you or a family member recognize when it's time to get help? How do you know that this is long COVID? We we assume something is long COVID largely because COVID is the best explanation for the changes that have occurred. So someone, let's imagine someone was a high-functioning high person, they weren't chronically ill, they didn't have a lot of challenges necessarily, they developed COVID, Three months later, they have a wide array of health problems. Nothing else has happened. They haven't been in a car crash. They haven't had a stroke. They haven't been hospitalized for any other reason. The only explanation seemingly um, is the effects of COVID. That's Occam's razor right there, I think, right, which is the most efficient. I'm not much of a philosopher, but I think the idea is the most efficient explanation is probably the right one, right? So I think that's why we think in many cases, yeah, this is probably due to COVID because COVID is the only phenomenon that happened to you. With that being said, I think it's very confusing to patients and it's confusing to their families how on earth it is that they got from point A to point Z. That is, I'm so fatigued, I'm so weak, I'm so traumatized. How on earth, right, did that happen on the heels of such a very inconsequential event that happened? How did it happen? And that's something that is really vexing to patients, it's confusing. That's an area where we have to do a lot of education often. 
Dr. Jackson, in your book, you seem to not appreciate the term brain fog being used as an indicator of long COVID, that the symptoms people describe are really a result of brain injury. It's a great question, a great comment that you're raising, and I'm glad we're talking about it. That is this issue of brain fog versus brain injury. Brain fog is uh, a foggy, forgive me, a foggy term, right? Who knows what brain fog means, right? That's what our patients regularly report. I think if you talk to 100 primary care providers at Vanderbilt or elsewhere, they would have 80 different definitions of brain fog, right? People don't really know what it means. And it also sounds, I think, not so serious. Ah, you've got a little brain fog. Um, but when you talk to our patients, um, patients with long COVID around the world, what you find is that the impact of their cognitive problems is very problematic. It, it is expressed in leaving a pan or a pot on the oven with the oven on, right? It's expressed in putting metal in the microwave. It's expressed in backing into a car in the parking lot, forgetting where you parked the car, taking the wrong medication, all of the classic things that happen. And everything that you just described, Dr. Jackson, I experienced following my traumatic brain injury. I left items exactly. on a burning stove. I put a cell phone right. in an oven, forgot to put the vehicle in gear, but I had a traumatic brain injury. I had a very distinct event. Uh, that's not necessarily the case with some of these patients, particularly if these symptoms are developing weeks, if not months, or even potentially a year later. Exactly right. Exactly right on two fronts. These are fairly identical functional symptoms that people with long COVID have to the symptoms that people with a traumatic brain injury have. You're right. You're also right that strictly speaking, this is not a traumatic brain injury because there's no external trauma, right, that happened, which is why if we go down deep, this would be not a TBI that people experience. It would be something called an ABI. ABI is um, the lesser known cousin, right, of a TBI, acquired brain injury. And those happen often due to internal processes, not external, medical processes, inflammation, 101 other mechanisms that drive these injuries. And um, when we look at the brains, not of all long COVID patients, but of some, we see atrophy, we see brain damage on MRIs, we see indicators that are not dissimilar from those of people with mild cognitive impairment or a mild TBI. How do you know when it's time to get help? I, I look at two criteria, and those have to do with persistence and what you might call significance or intensity. So persistence would be these problems don't seem to be going away, right? They're staying around. These cognitive problems are persisting. Um, that's that's one. But two is not only are they persisting, they are significant enough now that they're disruptive, right? They're disrupting my daily life. Um, if they're persisting and they're so mild that they're like a pebble in my shoe, I might not care a lot about those, right? Um, if they're persisting and they're not impacting my day-to-day -day life much because of the nature, perhaps, of the life that I'm living, that may also be okay, right? Um, if I'm digging ditches for a living, um, the mild cognitive problems I'm having might not be impairing at all, right? But if I'm a 
journalist, if I'm an expert in constitutional law and I'm having to make compelling arguments in front of a Supreme Court, if I'm a physician, as a lot of our patients with long COVID are, those mild cognitive problems, even if they're very mild, the impact of those is quite profound. So I think the invitation to your audience, if they have long COVID or know people with long COVID, is if these problems are not going away and they're significant enough to cause disruption, let's not stop at go and collect $200, right? Let's proceed and get the help that we need, get the diagnosis and the help we need. Let's talk about that, because I think a lot of times when we talk about cognitive deficits or dysfunction, it's so broad and it can be really challenging to really kind of nail down what that is. Uh, I know for myself, it in the aftermath of my own traumatic brain injury, it was quite clear. I could not remember a lot of things uh, to the point that sometimes uh, I was not necessarily safe because, for example, I'm in a vehicle and I'm forgetting to shift gears properly. So that's pretty obvious, Right. But you talk about in your book, for example, someone who, I think it was a woman who was baking, something that she loved, enjoyed to do. Now, all of a sudden, following a recipe was really, really challenging. Can you explain to me what that is indicative of? What cognitive deficit, then, is someone potentially suffering from when they start to see these subtle changes or not so subtle changes following COVID? I'm glad to engage this, and and you're right. Sometimes they're subtle, sometimes they're not so subtle. It it, it varies widely, but but the specific example you mentioned, and there are many more that could be shared, has to do with what we call executive functioning. Executive functioning is uh, probably the most important cognitive domain that that nobody's heard of, right? Like the man on the street may not be familiar with executive functioning, right? But executive functioning, um, which is influenced by things like the frontal lobes and the prefrontal cortex, etc. Executive functioning involves planning and multitasking, engaging in tasks that involve multiple steps, sequencing, follows things like that. Um, And often we see striking impairment in our patients in this area, executive functioning, we refer to that as executive dysfunction. It's dysfunction. And um, it is probably one of the primary areas where we see impairment, executive functioning impairment, impairment in attention, impairment in processing speed. You mentioned memory, and certainly a lot of our patients report problems with memory. Um, When we drill down deep, and look at what's going on, often their problems are not actually related to memory. Often their problems are problems with attention, but they mimic problems with memory, right? Can you give me an example? What would that look like? So um, I run a lot of errands to the grocery store near our house. And the way this normally goes is, My wife tells me what I need to pick up, and then she usually says, do you need to write that down? I usually say no, and then I usually get to the store. Um, I have no idea what I'm supposed to pick up, and um, that's not really because my memory is not working. It's usually because I was trying to watch the Pittsburgh Steelers game on our TV set as I was walking out the door, and as she was speaking to me, I wasn't really attending. 
I wasn't really attending. So I got to the store. I thought, oh, my gosh, is it olive oil? Is it apple cider vinegar? What is it, right? It's not that I couldn't remember. It is that I wasn't attending. So the, the amnestic memory problems that are so classic in Alzheimer's disease, let's say, we don't see those much in patients with long COVID. But what we do see often are striking problems with attention. This is partly why one of the pharmacologic strategies that many neurologists, some primary care providers use with their patients involves prescribing Ritalin, involves prescribing a medication called guampacine. These are ADD medications, Adderall, Concerta. There's some evidence, anecdotally at least, that they can help patients with long COVID. Why? Because the primary problem for many people with long COVID is attention. Um, even though if you ask patients, they'll tell you it's their memory. And so that's the sort of thing that you might go to your primary care provider saying, I'm struggling with memory. But according to what you're saying and also what you lay out in the book, that's where you need to be directed to a specialist who can then ask the appropriate probing questions to really get into the difference between memory, processing, attention, executive functioning. Exactly right. It's so important that people take that next step of seeing a specialist. And the the gold standard specialist would be a neuropsychologist. They're the people who are the domain experts in distinguishing between deficits in memory versus attention versus executive functioning, as you noted. Um, one reason this is important, I think this this whole conversation is important, is I see so many patients, I can't tell you how many I've seen, who develop profound anxiety on the heels of their cognitive problems because they're convinced that they have early onset Alzheimer's disease, right? They're 42 years old and they think they're, they're about to, to be in the throes of aggressive dementia. And, and of course that's scary. So it's, it's validating and it's useful to say to them, I don't know what's going on, but based on our experience, we can be quite sure that it's not that. It's not that it feels like that, but it's not that. And that's a really helpful message and an anxiety decreasing message. I remember following my TBI, um, I remember feeling as though I was going senile. I remember right. thinking that I had aged 40 or 50 years. I couldn't remember. Right. I, 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 I was right. slow. Um, I, I, I couldn't multitask. Uh, all of these different things, which in and of itself created anxiety, created um, sadness, and if I'm being quite candid, depression. And that's something that you also talk about in your book is the link, the connection um, to uh, mental health challenges following um, a COVID diagnosis and, and long COVID. How do you make the distinction between a mental health challenge stemming from long COVID and the, the, the physical deficits that are also going on? It's not so simple to make that distinction, and and that's why it is best made in the context of a more comprehensive evaluation, often an evaluation that will extend beyond what you would get in your PCP's office in the context of a 15 or 20 minute encounter. It's, it's difficult to tease these out. I, I think what we know as it relates to cognition and mental health, at least, is that they are closely linked to one another. And um, as your mental health gets worse, 
often your cognition is adversely affected equally. As your cognition gets worse, um, that often results in more anxiety and more depression. So they, they are, in my mind, inextricably linked, and we see this every day. Um, is there a distinction between the two? Sure there is. But um, really, if you have one, you very often have the other, that is in the case of long COVID. And we often will optimally treat people when we engage both of those, mental health and cognition, both of them. In your book, you say that cognitive impairment and mental health challenges are shown to exist in up to 50% of all long COVID patients. So that means a long COVID patient is not only engaging with providers to treat what's going on physically with the cognitive decline, but they are also having to engage with providers to address mental health. That is a lot. And it's especially a lot when you look at the fact that cognitive impairment impacts your ability to stay on top of appointments, to stay organized, to to use technology to go to that patient portal and figure out when your appointment is, right? Like cognitive impairment makes all of that harder. So it is a lot. Um, I've got a support group, two of them, that I'll lead later today. And if, if today's support groups are like any of the other hundreds of support groups we've led with long COVID patients, this topic will come up. This topic of, I've got so many appointments, I've got so many doctors, uh, it's a full-time job trying to navigate uh, visiting my neurologist, my physiatrist, my psychiatrist, my uh, cardiologist. I could go down the list, right? It's a full-time job, and um, it's a hard thing for patients having to figure out often on the fly not only how to navigate, but also how to advocate, how to advocate for themselves, which is no easy thing. Um, we see these challenges in our rank and file patients. And we see these challenges even in our patients who are very sophisticated healthcare consumers. Even they um, are not quite sure how to navigate this Byzantine complicated maze. And sometimes I'm not sure how to navigate it either. I felt as though your book applies to anyone dealing with any um, illness, not just those uh, with long COVID, because it really is a handbook uh, for how to um, navigate today's healthcare system. You talk about, for example, um, patients should try to have a friend or caregiver come with them, um, assist them in preparing for their appointments, and then, if possible, have them actually uh, attend the appointments as well. But another thing that you brought up, which I was very curious about, was that you tell patients that they should also talk to their provider, particularly the primary care provider, about what their philosophy is about long COVID. Why is that so significant when you talk about philosophy around long COVID? I mean, long COVID is. It's not something you can be philosophical about, correct? You noted correctly that long COVID is, right? It, it, it is. I mean, I take it as a given but um, there are a surprising number of physicians, of medical providers of various stripes who are skeptical, I think, even today about long COVID, right? Who are dismissive of long COVID. This isn't new news necessarily, right? There are patients with chronic Lyme disease. There are patients with chronic fatigue, many patients with many conditions who feel like they have had to swim upstream 
for a long time, right? And um, and I think making sure that you have a COVID-friendly provider who is not only believing you, but is willing to advocate vociferously for you, I think it's really important. One of the things that has made me really sad during this hard season, during this hard pandemic season, is how many patients I encounter who say, you know, I've gone to so many doctors, I've been so thoroughly marginalized by them, I've been so dismissed by them, um, I've heard it from enough people, I've heard it from people in enough situations, I think it's a phenomenon that happens, and um, it needs to get better. But in, instead of fighting City Hall, I think a better strategy is find a provider that you don't have to convince, find a provider that's going to believe you. Okay, let's say you've found your very supportive primary care provider who recognizes your symptoms are indeed long COVID. The next step is seeing a specialist. And you say there are neurologists and neuropsychologists. Explain the difference and why it's important to be seen by one or the other, or perhaps both. So Neuropsychologists and neurologists, they have a lot of overlapping expertise. They're distinct, but they're overlapping Venn diagrams, if you want to think of it that way. Um, with that being said, often the subtle impairments that occur in people with long COVID are going to be identified more readily on a neuropsychological evaluation than they are in a neurology office. So for that reason, the sort of order in my mind is let's start with a neuropsychologist. They'll see what they see. They can make that referral to a neurologist if they think it's necessary. We have had so many people start with neurology. Neurologists have a vital role to play, no doubt, but often the main thing a neurologist is gonna do, they're gonna refer you for an MRI, typically in patients with long COVID, that brain MRI is negative, not always, but typically. And um, a patient with that negative MRI, they're going to feel frustrated, not very informed. But if you see a neuropsychologist at a minimum, you're going to leave with a lot of information you didn't have before. And that's why that is a good first step. And it's a good first step because the neuropsychologist is going to pick up some things that the neurologist won't pick up because the neurologist is looking at structural changes to the brain. Exactly. That that's exactly it. They're looking for uh, more more global, more profound, often more gross. So the the neurologist acknowledging they have a vital role to play is not going to pick up minutia. They're not going to pick up minutia with regard to discerning whether a problem is attention versus memory versus working memory versus executive functioning. That's not their goal. The neuropsychologist is, on the other hand, going to give you that information, and that is going to add a lot of value, partly because that information, Christina, is going to lay the groundwork for cognitive rehabilitation. It's going to provide a roadmap because you're going to leave with a package in your hand, it's a cognitive testing report, and it is going to say the problems are attention, the problems are not memory, the problems are processing speed. And those are the things, whatever they are, that that cognitive rehab expert, typically a speech and language pathologist, can then target. So the neuropsychologist is going to add 
at the beginning particular value, particular value. And when you talk about cognitive rehabilitation, there is a difference between this idea of, and I don't want to use the word cure because I, even that just sounds loaded, but there's a difference between rehabilitating back to, say, your pre-COVID state or now recognizing that you have a new normal. Uh, so let's talk about cognitive rehab and, and, and expectations, quite frankly. It's interesting. Uh, you know, the pioneer in many ways in the last many decades in the cognitive rehab space is the VA, is the Department of Veterans Affairs. And I thank you, by the way, for your service. Thank you for your service. My TBI rehabilitation was at a VA medical center. Yeah, they do such extraordinary work at the VA and so many different VA hospitals across the country. And uh, and I'm, I'm blessed to do research at the VA often on these topics. But um, cognitive rehab doesn't promise, shouldn't promise, that, that it is a ticket to full recovery, right? It's not going to completely undo all of the challenges that exist in people. What it will do, what it should do, is it should provide them an array of tools that they can use to be much more effective than they were given the challenges they have right? It's going to give them a set of tools. That's why we often refer to cognitive rehab as compensatory in nature. You're learning strategies, and those strategies are maximizing the ability that you have, um, even though that ability might be diminished. Um, we see, and you know, I'm sure, given your experience in the service, we see, and you know, many people with brain injuries who are functioning in boardrooms, in police stations, in operating uh, environments, in courtrooms. People with brain injuries are thriving. Many of them are, right? Not all of them are. Many of them are with difficulty in some cases, right? But many of them are thriving. And so rehab is what facilitates that thriving instead of surviving. Um, Unfortunately, um, far too few patients with long COVID are referred to cognitive rehab. And I think the reason for that, Christina, is that people have a notion of what a brain injury is, right? And that notion is a brain injury is, in our world here in Tennessee, you fall out of a deer stand 20 feet and you land on your head, right? You fracture your skull, right? That's a brain injury, right? You go to Iraq and um, there's a blast explosion, right? That's a brain injury. But the truth is that term brain injury has a much, much broader valence, right? It applies to a lot of different things, right? And um, the more people think of long COVID as brain injury, which I think it can be, the more likely they are to refer to rehab. But too often, because in people's minds this doesn't coalesce with a brain injury, people are never referred. And unfortunately, they don't get the treatment that would often heal and help restore them. And so that's where you as the advocate or your family or friend uh, acting as an advocate becomes so, so critical. I mean, I just think about my time in neuro rehab. Um, I felt like I was in a maze. I was in a right. labyrinth. I couldn't see my way out. But it's hard to imagine that when you are in the thick of it, 
how do you also have the appropriate bandwidth, the appropriate awareness? You don't even know what questions you should be asking. Um, where is the bridge to that? I, I, I think the book is intended to be a bridge, and I've heard from so many people who have said just that, right? They've effectively said, this is a bridge, right? This is a manual um, and and maybe even a map. And, and I think there's a need for a map because as you noted, people are not exactly sure how to proceed. And, and even when they are, it's really difficult, right? It's really scary. I'm wearing a bracelet um, actually in Vanderbilt colors, black and gold here. And it's got two words on it. And the words are lean in, lean in, right? And um, in mm. our support groups, this is a phrase that I use so often. I've used it as I've spoken to myself related to my OCD. Lean in, meaning lean into hard things, right? You've got to do these hard things. Mm. And um, as you know, brain injury rehabilitation is a really hard thing, right? Coping with PTSD, whether it is due to combat or whether it's due to developing critical illness, it's a really hard thing. It requires a lot of courage, a lot of resilience. Um, and yet, Robert Frost said, the only way around is through, right? Like there's no shortcut. The only way around is through. And so one of the one of the valuable things of these support groups is we create a climate where we're encouraging, empowering one another uh, to lean in to do these hard things. Because I think if you don't have any community support, it's almost impossible, almost impossible if you don't have family or friends mm -hmm. or someone beside you. You also write in your book about your own experience with obsessive compulsive disorder and how that illness um, has helped shape who you are today. You were diagnosed in 2018, is that right? That's correct. How has that now informed how you approach uh, your, your patients who, in some cases, as you noted in your book, can sometimes develop OCD as part of long COVID? It's been a really interesting journey for me. Uh, I'll go to see my psychologist actually tomorrow morning at eight, as a matter of fact. And, uh, and I'm really proud because I've moved from once a week to once a month to now every six months or so, I see her, this is a checkup. But uh, but it's been hard. It's been a hard journey for me with OCD, and and I've learned a lot in the process, right? And and one of the main things I think that, that I've learned is that I can, you can coexist with really hard things, right? You can live a life of beauty, of richness, of thriving, even in the midst of hard things. And um, that insight, I mean, very literal for me, this idea that you can have really upsetting thoughts, very upsetting at any time, they might be there. And even as that's going on, you can be productive, right? You can be engaging in meaning, in beauty and richness. So that message resonates a lot, I think, with our long COVID patients who, who are fighting, this is what they're fighting. They're fighting this idea that um, because I have long COVID, my life is utterly ruined, right? There's this there's this all or nothing idea that many people fall prey to, which is the only way I'm going to be okay is if my insert condition, right? The only way I'm going to be okay is if my brain injury goes away, right? The only way I'm going to be okay is if my OCD goes away. The only way I'm going to be okay is if my long COVID goes away. And our invitation to patients is 
hey, let's let's think about that a different way. Let's consider and embrace the idea that you can be okay even if your long COVID never goes away. And um, that's a and that's a hard that's a hard pill to swallow. That's really challenging. It's a hard pill. It's so funny because that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. That's a hard pill to swallow, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't start there. Like therapeutically, Christina, you don't meet someone for the first time and say, "Oh, by the way, uh, you're going to be okay if your long COVID never goes away," right? Like it takes a lot of a lot of uh, tilling the soil, if you will, right, um, before someone is ready to embrace that. But when people can embrace that, um, it's really powerful. In my own journey, I can remember kicking around, making exactly no progress in my OCD treatment. And about a year and three months in, I remember I had a had an old white Buick SUV and I was sitting in it at the top of our hill at our house. And I was talking to uh, my therapist on the phone uh, 15 months in, and I remember in time one day saying, you know, I think I'm finally ready to accept this. I'm ready to stop fighting it. I'm ready to accept it. And when that happened, the entire landscape changed for me. The progress I started making was dramatic. And when we get people to the place where they can accept, I don't like it. I don't want it. I didn't ask for it. I'm grieving it, but I'm accepting my long COVID. Often their lives begin to change. Yeah, that's really challenging. I'm just thinking you're you're a better person than me because it took me, if I'm being honest, it took me a few years to really accept the ramifications of my own brain injury. Um, I was in neuro rehab for a year, intensive neuro rehab for a year, but then I did have to go back and get cognitive rehabilitative therapy. In fact, I had to go back and meet with a neuropsychologist in I think it was 2021 because I started noticing some things and I was thinking, well, wait a minute. This hasn't happened since the the car wreck and the TBI. I started yeah. noticing that I was leaving the stove on. Yeah. And right. even when the smoke alarm went off, it still didn't occur to me that I left the stove yeah. on. And when I had yeah. to come to the reality that I needed that I needed support again, it was very, very, very hard. And the reason why I bring that up is because you talk about in your book that there is this new normal, essentially, that people yeah. with long COVID just at some point have to accept. Right. And that new normal can be as simple as recognizing that, in my case, if I cook, I turn the light on above the stove range. Right. And that lets me know that a burner is on because the light right. is on. Yeah. So I want to talk about some of those strategies, because you lay out a lot, a lot of different strategies that are at um, people's disposal. Let's talk about some of the big ones that you think um, have been the most effective um, for a broad range of your patients. Sure. Uh, Far and away, the most effective strategy for our patients um, has been something called ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act. And um, and an act um, is is interesting. You know, cognitive therapies often focus, as you know, often focus on the idea that that I'm going to try hard to change my thoughts to try to make them a little more rational, right? I'm going to catastrophize a little less. I'm going to learn some techniques to think a little more realistically about things. I'm going to teach myself to see the glass half full instead of half empty. Those are often 
cognitive strategies, right? Before you go further, distinguish how this is different from positive thinking. Right. We're in a culture right now where we've got a lot of people talking about think positive, manifest what you want and like differentiate that. Sure. Yeah. Like you, I've turned the channel on before and I've seen Joel Olstein on TV. You know, we lived in California, not far from the Crystal Cathedral, where Robert Schuller was the, the king of positive thinking, right? Norman Vincent Peale um, before him. So, um, so I'm not advocating and nobody should advocate. Hey, hey, just um, just uh, just dream that things are a little better. Just imagine they're better and they will be right. Just pretend that they're not a problem. Right. That kind of avoidance doesn't serve anybody very well. You know, I talk in my book. I like that you call it avoidance. It is. That that's really avoidance is what it that is. is. It is okay. avoidance. Uh, in the book, I talk about a story, sad but true, right? Where the check engine light goes on in my car, in the one car that we have, um, and I cover it up with a note card and I keep on driving, right? And one day the the car breaks down, right? The engine dies and I sell it at the scrapyard the next day for $50, right? Um, <laughs> that was a sad day. My wife was really frustrated with me, rightly so, right? That was our one car. I just avoided. So we're not in favor of avoidance. Um, and um, I'm also not in favor of the idea that um, I just need to change the way that I'm thinking about things to make it more palatable, because that is also difficult. My my approach, not mine, right? Like I didn't embed it, but the approach that I prefer is hey, your thoughts are your thoughts, right? They're positive or they're negative or they fluctuate from positive to negative. Your thoughts are your thoughts. Um, my invitation is let's not worry about changing the thoughts so much. Let's focus more on changing your relationship with your thoughts, meaning, hey, these thoughts might be there, these negative thoughts, but man, those thoughts are not me, right? Uh, how do I detach from those thoughts? How do I realize that I'm not defined by those thoughts? How do I learn to notice those thoughts instead of being hooked by those thoughts, right? How do you do that? One way to do it in acceptance and commitment therapy is realizing, you know, thoughts are just thoughts. That's what they are. You know, they're rolling across the screen at any one time. We're having millions and billions of them in a day or a week. They're just thoughts. That's all they are. So learning to notice them instead of attached to them is a key step here. Um, related to that, um, learning to notice that you have long COVID, right, and acknowledge it without becoming overly attached to that, that's a really important therapeutic strategy. And what I mean is, if we take your case, you have a traumatic brain injury, you're a TBI survivor, but my Lord, you are much more than that, right? Like you are so much more than that, right? So much more. And um, one challenge with our long COVID patients is many of them have been so depleted, overwhelmed, uh, hit hard, whatever metaphor you wanna choose by long COVID, that that becomes the defining mark of their life. I have long COVID. And, and we're working hard to say, oh gosh, let's draw a pie 
and let's make sure that long COVID is a piece of that, but let's try not to make that a giant piece, right? Let's try to reinforce that you are far more than your long COVID. And um, ACT emphasizes that, and that's what I love about it. On a personal level, I love the idea that I have OCD, yes, but I'm far more than my OCD. That's important because if the sum total of my life is a guy with OCD, if the sum total of the life of our support group patients is a long COVID survivor, I don't think that's very inspiring, right? That's not where we want to stay and that's not where we want to take our patients. You're saying we should change our thoughts into leaning in to what's hard? So leaning into that identity of long COVID. How does that type of optimism actually impact the healing itself? So I think the challenge is how can you embrace your long COVID, everything that goes with it? How can you embrace it? but not too much, right? That's what I tell patients. Let's embrace this identity, but not too much. It, it's part of who you are, not all of who you are. Um, positive thinking may play a role in that, but it's far more than just increased positivity, right? It's acknowledging that this is really hard and uh, developing the conviction that even though it's really hard, I can do really hard things. You do positive thinking, but you can also have toxic positive thinking, right? It does more harm than good. Yeah, toxic positivity is a problem. That's that's looking at a, a challenge and, and pretending that it's all rainbows and unicorns, right? That's not what we want to mm-hmm. do. Mm-hmm. When you talk about some of the technologies that are available, you mentioned luminosity, and you mentioned actually quite a few uh, different tools that are at people's disposal. One of the things that I often struggled with when it came to particularly the, the, the brain games um, was recognizing what was legitimate for starters and what also is going to generalize. Right. It might help me with the game, but then how does it help right. me when I'm not online? When it comes to right. technology, how do you recommend that patients engage? To whom should they be speaking about what has the research to back it up? Yeah. How do you verify it? Where do you go to find those answers? The, the term that you're referencing when you talk about uh, how the games help and how much they'll help in real life is called far transfer. And that refers to this idea that I'm going to stop playing the games and the benefits are going to transfer both to other areas and for a long time in the future, right? And that's the thorny debate here, which is, gosh, uh, you know, I'm playing on a keyboard. Is this just going to help me be more proficient at a task on a keyboard once I stop playing are all the benefits going to be eroded? And, and that's what people debate. And um, where I where I fall on this is the following. Um, you know, a decade ago, virtually everyone who was a thoughtful scientist, with a few exceptions, was highly skeptical of the benefit of brain games. Since that time, there has been an emergence, I would say, of some evidence that suggests they may be quite a lot more effective than some people have thought 
in facilitating improvement, especially in people's attention and processing speed. Those seem to be the areas um, where there are benefits and there are benefits that for some people seem to hold. The best player, I, I don't hesitate to say in this space, is a company called Posit Science. They make a game called Brain HQ. Um, the NIH, they recently selected a half dozen interventions or so for people with long COVID as part of this multi-billion dollar intervention. And Posit Science, Brain HQ, was one of the technologies that they selected. So National Institutes of Health has, uh, what is it called again? Posit Science? Posit Science is the name of the company. Okay. Their product is called Brain HQ. So I like it because anecdotally at least, um, we've had a lot of patients experience it as effective. And this is important, um, it's quite inexpensive. And the reason I mentioned expense is I think um, if something costs 30 or $40 a year, um, $100 a year, and it's not hugely effective, you haven't lost that much, right? If something costs $5,000 a year and it's not effective, then that begins to be a bit of a problem, right? So um, I like Brain HQ because I think there's good evidence that it works. And because if it doesn't work for you, you haven't risked much. You risk $50 a year, right? Do you have to do it consistently? Is, is it the sort of thing where you do it for X number of weeks or months? Or is it something that so long as you have these symptoms, you, you have to continuously be engaging with this particular technology? It is something they recommend you do consistently. I, I do think there is some evidence that if you stop, the benefits will hold. Um, this has been expressed probably best in a number of studies published in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association, in particular, a number of studies that are under the rubric of something called the active trial. There was a there was a trial that relied on positive science, Brain HQ, called the active trial. And people in the active trial really seem to benefit meaningfully. But I think the I think the point you raised is a great one. That is, even though I think this is effective for some, even though I think this is worth a try for some, it is not a panacea. It's not a magic wand. And they themselves would readily acknowledge that. Mike Merzenich, who founded the company, and other thoughtful scientists, they would acknowledge um, this isn't going to cure all the world's, world's ills. If it helps you with your cognition, notably attention and processing speed, so much the better. But uh, it's not going to solve every single problem. Where are you suggesting people go? It sounds like you're saying if people want to explore brain games, go to NIH, the National Institutes of Health, to review their list of evidence-research-backed technologies. What about the therapeutic recommendations? In your book, you address ACT, which we've already discussed, but also you mention CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, and CPT, cognitive processing therapy. What else? Many of those therapies you reference are specifically for post-traumatic stress disorder, um, CPT, cognitive processing, uh, and uh, PE, prolonged exposure, that would be another one, MDR. Um, I think that's relevant because there are people with long COVID and other chronic conditions who have PTSD. There absolutely are. 
and for them, um, empirically validated treatments are important. This is the point that I would emphasize that um, whether it is cognitive rehab, Christina, whether it is mental health treatment, we want to engage in things that are effective, right? That have a track record of being effective. So all treatments are not created equal, right? They're just not. And um, I think if you're talking to your therapist, you know, laying on the couch and spending uh, countless hours and days um, rehearsing and, and revisiting memories from your childhood, that's probably not necessarily going to help your PTSD related to long COVID, right? You need, you need effective therapies. Um, and the term that people can Google or look up is empirically validated. And empirically validated just means there's an evidence base that supports this treatment for this condition. So for PTSD, cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure, those are empirically validated. The VA has a great website at the National Center for PTSD. Anybody with PTSD can Google the National Center for PTSD. There is a lovely discussion about treatments that work or don't work. I think the, the key message here is what works for PTSD works for PTSD, whether PTSD is due to COVID or whether PTSD is due to um, a sexual assault or whether PTSD is due to combat. What works, works. What works for brain injuries works for brain injuries. So it's not hugely relevant to me. It's not that I don't care, but it's not hugely relevant to me whether the cause is COVID or whether the cause is a TB. Um, if you're having deficits in attention and deficits in processing speed, we're going to use the same approach. If you have executive dysfunction, we're going to use goal management training. And that's going to focus on learning strategies, teaching a technique called stop and think. And at the end of the day, it's probably going to help. What are the barriers to access? You and I have talked about the VA system. Obviously, not everyone is going to have access to that. Not everyone is also going to have access to long COVID clinics. Right. So what are kind of the challenges that people might find in trying to access the appropriate care? It's a huge problem. I, I, I wish I could give a great answer uh, beyond saying it's a huge problem. Um, if you look at the, the most recent research, and, and I, I probably need to revisit, I think there are 250 or so long COVID clinics, plus or minus, um, in the United States and you know many others around the world. There are several states that don't have a long COVID clinic at all, and there are certainly locales where there are no long COVID clinics within a day's drive, let's say. You know, I'm from Michigan. If you live in the northern edge of the UP, it's a long way to go to get to Ann Arbor, right? Um, could you get there? Yeah, I guess you could. Are you going to drive it? Probably not. So, um, so there are problems with access. Telehealth has changed the game that way a bit, um, made it better. And just as effective, just as effective. I think in many cases, just as effective. Okay. Um, I think the problem, as it relates to cognitive rehab at least, the problem of knowledge, that is awareness of what is out there, is at least as big as the problem of access. The dynamic for me has been that when I say to thoughtful people, hey, you should get cognitive rehab, they say, that sounds okay, 
what is that? I've never heard of it. You know, I say, oh, you should see a speech and language pathologist. They say, what is that? You know, I don't know what one is. They think it has something to do with if you can't speak. Yeah, I had an SLP, but I, I could speak. Right. But we were doing far more than just that. Yeah. They are uniquely capable and they have a role to play. Uh, what is their role with long, po with long COVID patients? You noted correctly, SLPs in the title, speech and language pathologist is speech and language. And, um, and often people think, gosh, my speech is fine, right? There are mm -hmm. no deficits in my language. I don't need an SLP. So in some ways, the, the, the title is perhaps not working in their favor, but their expertise, their training, and their role has to do with helping people improve cognitive deficits, right? right? Helping people improve deficits, find strategies, develop workarounds, learn new tools. And when we refer people to SLPs, and I have made dozens, if not hundreds of referrals during the pandemic, when we refer people to SLPs, they get better. They reliably get better. And it is a beautiful sight to behold. And I wish, I only wish that more people were quicker to embrace this idea of referring to SLPs. Do we have enough SLPs to see millions of people with long COVID? No way, right? Like no way. But um, are there a lot of them who are underutilized? You know, I think there are. You've already identified a few different ways that people can engage to get support, whether that be finding, obviously, a long COVID clinic, even though they're far and few between, utilizing telehealth services and recognizing that they're not losing anything by not being in person. We've talked about speech language um, pathologists, SLPs, and also technologies and, and where to go to find the ones that uh, have the research and have the data backing up their efficacy. We talked about the NIH. Right. You also mentioned in your in your book, which I thought was very interesting, which was engaging with universities and organizations um, that are conducting trials, that are conducting uh, research right. as a way to help support as well. How does one do that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think many people would love to take advantage of clinical trials, but they don't know how to go about it. And And it's fairly simple. That is... The first step is fairly simple, and that is there's a website, www.clintrials.gov. It's a very user-friendly website. You've got a box or two where you can type in breast cancer, you can type in TBI, you can type in multiple sclerosis, whatever you want to type in, and it is going to find all of the trials around the world, um, certainly in the United States, but likely around the world, that are registered with the federal government. So registered with the federal government, that's important. Well, here's why it's important though, because the, the current rule is, if you have a trial of any consequence, any, it really has to be registered with clintrials.gov. And, and if it's not, the, the, the issue is if it's not, um, when you get ready to publish your results, however sexy they might be, um, they're not getting published. It's a requirement. So if there is a clinical trial and it's not registered with clintrials.gov, um, it could be fine, probably not, um, you know, maybe a little slipshod. So um, anything that is worth pursuing, you're going to find 
on clintrials.gov. You type in long COVID, type in long COVID and cognitive impairment. It's very user-friendly. You're going to find a lot of options and you should pursue them. What, if anything, are you recommending to people who now might be concerned, more concerned about contracting COVID, much less long COVID? It's a, it's a dance that we do with our patients because on the one hand, we really want to affirm their anxieties and their fears about contracting COVID again, right? Because they have those. I'm thinking of one of my patients who um, contracted COVID at the, at the hairstylist, at the hair salon, and um, wound up in the ICU, almost died, is deathly afraid of returning to the hair salon right? Doesn't want to get her mm. hair cut. Could she survive without going back to the hair salon? I think she could, right? Um, might it be healthy for her to go to the salon, face that fear? I think it might, right? So um, at the end of the day, we want people to be thoughtful and we want them to be comfortable increasingly living with uncertainty, mm. but we want them to flex their uncertainty muscle, to be comfortable living with uncertainty, because the only way, I think, to 100% ensure that you're not getting COVID again is literally to never leave your house, right? It's to decide not to leave your house. And, um, and you can do that, and you might not get COVID, and there are other ills that might befall you, right? Social isolation is a problem. Loneliness is a concern. Disconnection from others is an issue. Right. So we've got to balance the the anxiety around COVID, quite rightly, with the need to engage with other people. And um, we provide some guidance, but at the end of the day, we leave it to patients to kind of figure out where they fall on that spectrum. I like that. Flex your uncertainty muscles. I tell my son all the time that he needs to flex his patience muscles. I've never heard uncertainty <laughs> <too>. muscles. Yeah. <laughs> but that's really that that's really great because, you know, everything, quite honestly, is uncertain. And if we live in this kind of paralysis mindset of I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that, then you don't get to live much of a life. Exactly. Uh, at yeah, all. Exactly. Exactly. We want to acknowledge that the limitations are real, the challenges are real, the situation is hard, and we want to acknowledge that, oh my, we can do hard things. When we're surrounded by a cadre of people in a support group, in a community, with your provider, whatever, we can do hard things. You know, I've been so inspired by the long COVID patients um, that I've interacted with. Uh, you know, I think one thing I learned in my own journey with OCD is that I'm probably stronger than I know. And uh, you probably learned that, I suspect, yeah. as well, right? Well, I learned it and all right. <laughs> you learned it, yeah. yeah I, we don't did. want to learn it, right? Yeah, we don't I could have done without it. the lesson, to be honest with yeah, you, but I certainly me too. learned it. <laughs> me too, me too. So, so one thing I've noted um, is, uh, is our long COVID patients, like so many people with chronic illnesses, they're stronger than they know. And as our long COVID patients learn to be less fearful, they do better. They do better. So uh, if people are listening with long COVID, my final comment, lean into that fear, right? Don't be reckless, mm. but let's lean into the fear and let's kind of wash our face, dust ourselves off. Let's lean into that fear again and let's not do it alone. Um, let's do it with support. 
because um, trying to engage this solo is a recipe for disaster. My guest, Dr. James Jackson. He is a neuropsychologist and a research professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University. He leads the long-term outcomes at the Critical Illness Brain Dysfunction and Survivorship Center at Vanderbilt. His new book is Clearing the Fog, From Surviving to Thriving with Long COVID, A Practical Guide. For more information about how to order the book and some of the insightful tools we discussed on today's program, they're provided in the show notes. Thank you for joining me.